Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Well, good morning. It's good to be in front of you again. I um, was thinking about this earlier that in, given the privilege and the honor of preaching before you, that it is really, uh, to me, uh, like preparing a good, fine meal <laughs> for God's people. Like even as we come into the Lord's house, um, we come together to feed upon God's word. And so I pray that... Um, this time we have, it's actually a really simple act, right? We have our Bibles open. We're looking through God's word. I'm saying some things. You're hearing some things. God's word is speaking to us, and the Holy Spirit is applying it to our lives that we might each and all together be transformed. So it is a joy for me to do this. It's a privilege for me to do this. And yet I am uh, humbled, and I tremble even now to do this because... Um, it is no trite thing that we do. This is God's word that we are opening together. So I uh, pray that uh, I would be faithful to it, that God's word would have its intended effect in our lives. So we will be there in Second John, uh, verses 1 through 3, but we'll be reading through the whole thing uh, together here in just a few moments. But um, as I was going through this, uh, I wondered this question, and if I had this question, I wondered maybe if you had this question as well, like, why was this particular book given to us in the Bible? Have you ever thought that? Maybe there's a passage of scripture, um, to some verses or something in the Old Testament, and we wonder, why was this book given to us? Maybe there are some things in it that are said elsewhere, or maybe it's difficult or confusing, and we just wonder why. We maybe would ask ourselves, maybe not in words, but maybe by our own actions, we would think, well, is this really necessary? You know, maybe there are some uh, books or passages that we can just skip over, that we can just give a cursory glance at, especially if we're reading through the Bible in a year. Um, maybe you get to like a short book, 13 verses, like Second John, and we get, oh, that's going to be easy to get to check my block today, right? You just kind of go through it, and we um, pass over it. And we wonder maybe how important is this book, how important are these verses to us? Well, we at this church... And Christians around the world affirm that all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. We know that these sacred writings are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So even as we prepare ourselves to read through this book, and see what these words that we'll see here in a moment, like love and truth, we can ask ourselves, um, what is it that we need to hear about love and about truth today? Are they needed today? What does true love look like? 
Is there such a notion as objective truth? And can we know it if it does exist? And what difference will this make in my life today? So let's stand together as we read 2 John with those questions and perhaps more in mind. When I get through reading verse 13, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, at which point we will say together, thanks be to God, but only say it if you really mean it, if you are thankful for God's word. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray, church. Lord, grant that as we approach your word this morning, that we would be those who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Lord, that having put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, we would receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. May you bring us from our present problems to your ancient solutions that we each and all might be equipped for every good work. Amen. Please be seated. So as we look at this letter of 2 John, we ask ourselves some questions about it. For example, who is the elder? Who is the elect lady that are being referred to here? And why aren't they addressed by name? We know that the Apostle Paul isn't opposed to using names. As we see him, uh, in the introduction and body of John, uh, Third John, where he uses the name of who he's writing to, Gaius, and the letter of Revelation, the revelation to John, he refers to himself by name. But, however, John does not refer to himself by name in any of his other writings recorded in Scripture. Instead, he refers to himself as, most commonly, especially within his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, or in the case of Second and Third John, as the elder. So we might ask ourselves, what is significant about this phrase, the elder? Well, at its root, it just simply means that, one who is older or more mature. But at the time that this letter was written, the term was used for a shepherd or pastor of a church, one who is an overseer. 
In fact, we see all three of these terms used in relation to one another in 1 Peter 5. I'll read beginning in verse 1 there. This is Peter writing, 1 Peter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there we see Peter writes that there are elders among these people, and that these elders should shepherd the flock of God that is among them. So they're among the people, and they exercise oversight as God would have them. They would do so eagerly. So while John was an apostle, like Peter, who had been with Jesus in his earthly ministry, had seen the risen Christ, he also functioned as a pastor in the early days of the church. And why is this significant? It's significant because when we read this letter, we are reading the words of a pastor caring for his flock. And really we should say it's not his flock, but God's flock. We read the truths that he's trying to convey, what is important for the sheep to know. We hear the love of a shepherd for his sheep. And it's also important to know that John views himself as an elder because it also helps inform us to whom he was writing. For who would this pastor write to? While 1 John appears to be a circular letter written to a number of churches, and 3 John is written to an individual, we don't know precisely to whom this letter was written. We read in verse 1 that this letter was written to the elect lady and her children. And we see a reference in verse 4 to some of your children, and verse 10 to those who you would be receiving in your house, and then the phrase, the children of your elect sister, in the closing verse 13. Well, one view is that this elect lady um, is just that, is just a woman. Perhaps her name was Electa from the word elect or chosen. That's what elect means, to be chosen. Or uh, Kyria from lady, the word that uh, is translated lady there. Perhaps that was the uh, proper name, the proper noun there. And if so, if that's the case, then any references to children or to the house or to the sister should be taken to be literal uh, children, house, or sister. And this is the, a woman chosen by God. The second view, however, is that this elect lady is used figuratively to refer to a local church. The apostles frequently use metaphors to describe spiritual aspects of the church. For example, in his third letter, John refers to the joy he has in hearing that his children are walking in the truth. Now, presumably, these are not John's children through flesh and blood, but through spiritual means. In fact, if you want a reference, 1 Corinthians 4, 15 and 16, Paul there writes to those whom he terms his beloved children. And why does he refer to them as his beloved children? It's because they, he became their father in Christ through the gospel. So when John concludes this letter, he writes, The children of your elect sister greet you. In this view, this symbolic reading of it, this children and this elect sister would be another congregation of believers. The other reasons why some might think that this is, we should read this in a less literal way aren't as obvious in our translation of the Bible here. Um, part of it is that the word for the church in Greek is feminine, and English is not a, a gendered language, so we don't have this, but other languages are. But the word for church in Greek is feminine, as is lady, 
And within the New Testament scriptures, we see that the church is often depicted as a bride. And further, much of the letter is written in the second person plural, which I had to look up. I don't know if you guys know what second person plural is, but it's like the you when it means not just you singular, but you all. So it's written to you all. Um, so he's writing to more than one person. Um, however, none of these arguments are decisive or conclusive. And while it might be nice for us to think as 1 John as a, written, a letter written to churches in an area, and 2 John as to an uh, individual church, and 3 John as a, to a church that, uh, to a named individual rather, uh, we want, don't want to be dogmatic about this. In fact, we don't want to go on ahead of Scripture as we read later further on in this letter. We want to abide in God's word. But regardless of which view we take, I think what we can learn from this letter remains the same. We see here the relationship of love and care, of knowing one another, uh, of knowing one another between these two parties, so much so that the author does not even need to name himself or who he's even writing, perhaps. Oh, that our relationship among each other would be the same, that we would be known by our love for one another and our care for one another. So how does this elder, the shepherd of God's sheep, begin this letter? What is it that he wants his sheep uh, to know? You can follow along in your notes if that's helpful. There's two points I have there. But we see from point one that John wants us to know that Christians truly love one another because the truth abides in all Christians. Christians truly love one another because the truth abides in all Christians. John begins by declaring his love for the church. How fitting is it that the apostle who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved would ground his letter in love? And notice how John qualifies his love. Love in truth. Now notice it does not say the truth, but in truth. And while there is a connection between these two ideas... I believe there is also a distinction here. This love and truth describes the nature of this love. It's a sincere love. Something like we read in 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So John isn't faking or putting on a polite uh, face or a half-hearted or reluctant love. He really does love this church. Or this woman. And the question is, can the same be said about us? Do we really love others in the church in truth? Do we really love, it, love the church? Are we genuine and sincere in our love? Do we love one another, as Peter put it, earnestly, as strenuously, fervently? Or are we simply being polite? Are we half-hearted in our love? Are we sometimes reluctant? With all the differences that we see in the church, personalities, backgrounds, cultural beliefs, political beliefs perhaps, interests, hobbies, maybe the most that we should realistically hope for is that we all get along politely. Because maybe if we really got to know each other, all we would see are the reasons why we shouldn't get along. All the differences, all of our faults, all of our sin, all the reasons why we should not come together. And if we look around this sanctuary, if we think about the names and the faces who have made this local body of believers their church family, we should ask ourselves, 
do we really love each other? If we do, how is such a love possible? We see the answer in the remainder of verses 1 and 2. We read, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So what do we see? Who loves this person and her children? Or who loves this church? Well, it's not just John, but it's all who know the truth. So notice John doesn't write some or many who know the truth, but all who know the truth without exception. What is a test that you know the truth? Is it not that you love others who know the truth? Isn't that what verse 2 says? Because, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So we have known this truth. Yes, that means we have grasped it with our minds what this truth is. And yes, it means that there is an agreement or a mental assent to what this truth is. But this text implies much more than those two aspects of knowing. This knowing isn't simply knowing the truth, but a firsthand experience of that truth. The truth is what? In us. It doesn't just remain in our mind, but it permeates our being. The truth stays and remains in us. And then because the truth is in us, it abides in us, we then love others who also have the truth abiding in them. And we don't just love for a time, for an hour or two on a Sunday morning. We love forever. Why can I say that? Well, what do we read? Because this truth abides in us, and will be with us forever. Well, how is that possible? How long is the truth going to abide in us forever? How long will we know the truth forever? So how long will we love in the truth forever? And what is the truth? Now, there is that article, what is the truth? I believe this is the truth concerning Christ and his teaching. In verse 7, if you look down there, we see the deceivers are those who deny Jesus came, Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And some of us may ask, well, why is that a big deal? They're not denying Christ, they just deny that he had come in the flesh. But what does John call those people, these deceivers? He calls them antichrist, those who are against Christ. And why is that? Because to deny the incarnation of Christ, to deny that he came in the flesh, is to deny the gospel itself. For it was necessary that Jesus take on human flesh to be a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. The incarnate Jesus was necessary to restore the relationship destroyed by sin in the garden and to give us eternal life. Turn with me in your Bibles a few pages back to 1 John, and we can see this. So that your confidence in what we say isn't in me, but in God's word. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
So what does John write there? This, which was from the beginning, we have touched this truth with our hands. This life was made manifest, he says in verse 2. And that which they have seen, they testify and proclaim to you. And what did they proclaim? Eternal life. That was, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. And why, do they, why does John proclaim this? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Well, is that doesn't maybe sound like a big deal, but why is that important? Because the fellowship that we can have with one another is, be, is grounded in our fellowship with the Father and the Son. So we see there's this restora- restoration of this relationship that was lost in the garden there when God sent Adam and Eve apart from him. Part of the gospel is bringing us back together to God, to the Father, and not only to him, but among each other, where we have enmity. We saw that with Cain and Abel, and then we see there can be enmity with one another, but we are brought back. Paul writes in Galatians, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the truth referred to here comes to us in two ways. The first is that it comes to us in the form of a person, Jesus Christ, who was the way, the truth, and the life. The truth also comes to us in the form of God's word. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, sanctify them in the truth, the truth, your word is truth. So sanctify them, set them apart through your word. So the truth is an objective and present reality, a sure anchor for our souls. And what's more, true love only comes from the truth. Christian love is not based on emotions or feelings, something that might ebb or flow. No, Christian love, true love, is not unmoored or anchored from the truth. And why is that? It's because only in the truth and in Christ and his word that we come to know what true love is. If you're still in 1 John, flip over a few pages to 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, maybe some verses that we are familiar with. I think there's a song that starts out with verses 7 and 8. So how do we know what true love is? We know it from the truth. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Not love is God, but because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So what the world calls love is not love at all. For how can the world know love if the world does not know the love of God in Christ? And what is this? As we look at these verses, what is exactly, what is John describing there? What is the love of God he describes here? 
first of all, that God took the initiative to send Christ. Not because we were sinless, but because we were sinners to redeem us from our sins. God's love did not deny the truth of his holiness and our sinfulness. But in that reality, in that truth, God laid, or Christ laid down his life. He took the form of a servant and became a servant to bring us to God. Let's go one more place to consider more fully what true love is. Let's go to Ephesians 5. And no, I'm not going to 1 Corinthians 13, but you can go there. It's not a bad, not a bad chapter. But Ephesians 5, we really narrow in on this love of Christ to the church. This special love. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So what does Paul write about here? Well, first of all, that true love is sacrificial. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. And why did he give himself up for her? To sanctify her, to make her holy. So our love should have that same purpose. We give up of ourselves to sanctify, to make holy the object of our love. And notice here, what's the basis? What's the, what's the framework that this love operates in? Is it not the word of God? That's what we read in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. So do we know the love of God in Christ? Well, as Jason read to us this morning, it's not something that I can read about here and you go, oh yeah, that's it. I know the love of, I know the love of God in Christ. No, what do, we, what do we read this morning? But that we need what? Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath of and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, surpasses knowledge. So we ought to be praying for ourselves and one another that we would have strength to comprehend the infinitude, <laughs> the limitlessness, the depth and the breadth, the height and the depth of God's love for us. And when we know this love, then we might be able to truly love one another. How do we know that we know the truth? Is there a test that we can take? <laughs> Questions that we can answer? Or is the real test how we love others who have the truth abiding in them? Isn't our love not just in word and in talk, but in deed and in truth? That we love one another in real ways. Do we love the church? Do we love each other as Christ loved us. So I think that's the first point that John is trying to make to his readers, that Christians truly love one another. They sincerely love one another because the truth abides in all Christians. And as we return to 2 John, if you're following me through Ephesians and 1 John, we'll go back to 2 John here. What's the second truth that John wants to impart to his readers? 
think the second truth that John wants to impart to his readers is that, is that Christians greet one another with grace, mercy, and peace that we receive from God. Christians greet one another with grace, mercy, and peace that we receive from God. This next verse, verse 3, is very easy to skip past without giving much thought if we're being honest with ourselves, at least if I'm being honest with you. What do we read in verse 3? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, and truth and love. If there is any greeting in a New Testament letter, it normally involves the words grace and peace, followed by grace uh, from God, Grace to you from God and from Jesus Christ. So we can, if we're not careful, simply skip past the standard greeting and get on to what's different about this letter. But perhaps we should actually ask ourselves, why is this phrase so important that it's almost included, it's included in almost every single letter that's in the New Testament? What is um, so unique about this greeting and what ramifications does this have for how we greet one another? Well, the first idea to note is that the words grace and peace were common in secular letters of the time. However, John and Paul and Peter transformed these terms grace and peace because they are the grace and peace that are from God the Father. And not only the Father, but through Jesus Christ. So how should we understand these terms grace and mercy and peace? Grace is God's unearned and unmerited favor. It is a gift. Grace is the kindness of God from which all blessings, spiritual or material, come. For it is by grace that any who are saved are saved. And this salvation is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. We should ask ourselves, what do we have that we did not receive? And if we received it, then we should not boast. What is peace? Peace is the welfare provided to God's people through Christ. While we may immediately think of peace as absence of war, a cessation of hostility, and it is that, for we were ones apart from Christ who were in enmity with God, peace is much more than simply the absence of the havoc of war. Peace is security, it's quietness and rest. Peace is the welfare of the health of the people. It is this idea of harmony and wholeness. Of people. So John prays for this grace and this peace. And then he adds something here that we don't often see, but he places mercy between grace and peace. And we often hear that grace is God giving us what we don't, uh, what we don't deserve, and mercy is giving us what we uh, is not giving us what we do deserve. I'll say that again because I messed it up. We often hear that grace is God giving us what we don't deserve and mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. But I think the biblical idea of mercy is far more than just withholding the things that we do deserve in our sin. It's more encompassing than that. God's mercy is his compassion or God's pity. And we might bristle at that a little bit. Do we see ourselves as those who need pity? Are we those who are miserable and afflicted. And more than just simply God's compassion and his pity, mercy is God's compassion and pity and action. We read in Ephesians 2 
beginning in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the late great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So God was rich in mercy, and because of this richness of mercy, because of the greatness of the love with which he has loved us, he made us alive. There was action that was taken because of this mercy that he has. So when John greets the elect lady and her children by stating grace, uh, mercy, and peace, uh, rather, John greets the elect lady and her children by stating that grace, mercy, and peace would not be to them, but, but would be with us. Do you see that there at the end of that first part there before the comma? That's interesting phrasing. This grace is not simply something to them or peace from God as is often referred to in the other New Testament greetings. We do see that this grace, mercy, and peace are from God, no doubt about that, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. But what's more is that this grace, mercy, and peace will be with them. Here, I think John is connecting himself and the children of her elect sister from verse 13 to this community of all who know the truth with the elect lady and her children, saying they together, they together will have grace and mercy and peace among them and accompanying them. And what a picture of community, of, of the community of believers of the church of God that this is. Do we know that grace, that mercy, that peace among ourselves and among other believers. And it's not simply just saying grace and mercy and peace, although I can't remember the last time someone said that to me, but it's not just saying those words, but it is true grace, the grace that we've received from God, right? Are our words edifying to give grace to those who hear it? Are we truly giving uh, mercy when we speak? You know, blessed are um, our those who have received mercy are those who are eager to give mercy to others in our language and how we act with one another. Are we compassionate to one another? And then do we bring peace with our words and with our actions, right? Um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And there's a harvest of righteousness sown by those who sow peace. So do we not just bring those words, but do we embody those words among each other? If we do have grace, mercy, and peace with us, it is only to two causes, I think. It's because of two reasons. The first is that we've been given them to us from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ. Christianity is a faith that is not a, a merit-based faith where we pull ourselves up, that we ascend a ladder. I think primarily it's one of things being revealed and given to us. Right? So we have received these things from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. God is the fount of all these rich blessings. What confidence and joy that should fill us with that God supplies grace and mercy and peace to his people. There's a picture uh, that one pastor uses about God's grace and it's uh, Niagara Falls. If you've ever seen a picture of it or been there yourself and the picture is like this, this the water coming down <laughs> and hitting the, the pool where it is, and it just, it comes. It's like without end. It just comes, and it flows, and it flows, and it flows over and over again. This, this infinite grace that we sang about earlier, do you know that grace, that infinite abounding grace in our lives? It's inexhaustible, to which we should say, amen, because our sin 
comes at us again and again and again, and we think, have I exhausted God's grace? And you can never exhaust God's grace. But notice that these are not just from God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, but are with us in truth and love, which we read at the end of verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. And what does that mean? It seems to me that as we abide in truth and love, we will have grace and peace and mercy, which will then connect back to verses 1 and 2. Christians are people who know the truth. They know Christ himself. They know the gospel. In the gospel, we see God's grace and mercy towards sinners. We see the peace made possible through the cross. And as we have come to know this truth firsthand, right, not just about the truth, but we know it firsthand, we love others who have also come to know and experience this truth. An alternative translation of verse 2 is, instead of because of the truth that abides in us, is because of the truth that abides among us. If that's the case, this truth is not just in us, but it's also among us. It's in our midst. And isn't that what the church should look like as we truly love one another? Because the truth, Christ himself abides in us. It's evident that the truth abides among us. So it's not only in us, but it is among us. And it will be with us forever. So that's the what. <laughs> so what, but what are we to do with this? Right? It's good to know this. I've, I can maybe explain what this means a little bit to someone else. I can know what it says there, but is the apostle, is God's word asking that we do something with this? Well, I think it does. I think it says that we should greet one another as John greets these believers, that we should greet one another with grace, with mercy, and peace. We should do, do so in truth and love. Perhaps we should ask ourselves, even this morning, do we really give a thought about how we greet one another? As you consider gathering together with God's people on a Sunday morning, do we have that intentionality in our minds? Like, how will I, this is the person I want to greet, and this is how I'm going to greet them. Or anyone that I greet this morning, I want to greet in this way. But we see, even in this letter, the importance of greeting and whom we greet is crucial. If you go quickly down to verses 10 and 11 of 2 John, we read there, referring to these who are deceivers, these antichrists, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So for now, we can say at a minimum how we greet and who we greet is no trivial matter. We should take that with importance. So how do we greet one another? Do we welcome one another even as we have been welcomed by God in Christ? Let's go to Romans 15 verses 4 through 7 as we conclude our time together in God's word. I think it's important for us to see this. Romans 15 verses 4 through 7. So how do we greet one another? How do we welcome one another? Here Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, 
It was written in former days, God's word, <laughs> scripture. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So do you know the welcome of Christ? Do you know the things that we've talked about this morning? Maybe you've heard them before. Maybe you've read about them before. Maybe even part of you agrees with what that is. Yeah, I think that sounds good in a way, right? That sounds good, pardon for sin. But have you come to know this grace? Do you know it even this day? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If not, then perhaps today is the day of your salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts to it. You can know what true grace is. You can know what true mercy is. You can know peace with God. And is that what we need? We need peace with God. If you are at war with God, at war with fellow man, it's because you lack the peace that's given only through the gospel. If you do know this welcome of Christ, well, let us steep ourselves, let us saturate ourselves in that knowledge, in that truth. Let us drink deeply and richly and constantly of the love of God. We're about to sing it in a few moments, but how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, how deep and how vast is that? That he should give his only son, the spotless lamb, to make a wretch his treasure. And having this truth abiding in us, and I pray it would abide in us, let us then truly love one another. Let us truly greet one another with God's grace, with God's mercy, God's peace and truth and love. Let's pray together, church. We confess, God, that we have not very often loved as we ought to have loved. That very often our inclination has been towards self and selfishness, our needs, our interests. That we have too often relied upon emotion or feelings subjectivity with regard to how we love, what is love, in fact. We ask, God, that even as perhaps your word has worked in our hearts this morning, God, that you would forgive us of this no small sin of lovelessness. For we know that is those who have been forgiven much, who love much. So if we love little, it's because we think that we have been forgiven of very little. But Lord, give us strength to see the magnitude of your love for us, the magnitude of our sin against a holy and righteous God, 
magnitude of your love that you would send Christ, your perfect, spotless, righteous lamb, to take our sin upon himself, to die in our place, to receive the punishment that we deserve, that we might no longer be your enemies, but be adopted as sons and daughters into your family. Lord, we know from your word that Christ and his church are tied together, that he is the head and we are the body. And so we pray that you would have glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever as we, your church, abides in your truth and in your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.